Welcome, I'm Huma Gupta, and this is Environment in Context, a podcast produced by the editors of the Javelia Environment page. I'm joined today by my guest host, China Sajabian, who is a PhD candidate in the Department of Anthropology at the CUNY Graduate Center, and currently a fellow at the Center for Place, Culture, and Politics, and the Committee on Globalization and Social Change. Welcome, China. Thank you, Huma. Today, China and I have the great honor of speaking with Dr. Ruth Wilson Gilmore, who is director of the Center for Place, Culture and Politics and professor of geography in Earth and Environmental Sciences at the City University of New York Graduate Center. She is also the author of Golden Gulag, Prisons, Surplus, Crisis and Opposition in Globalizing California. Welcome, Dr. Gilmore. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here, and I look forward to our conversation today. Ruthie, thank you again for joining us. For our listeners who are learning about your work for the first time, can you tell us about your own background as a scholar, activist, and geographer? How did you come to the discipline of geography? And what kinds of analytical commitments shaped your first book on the political economy of prisons in California? Well, thanks for that good question. I came to geography pretty late in life and stumbled into it, actually. I had been doing many different kinds of political work and day jobs to pay my bills for many years after I had studied drama for a long time, 17 years out of school. And in the process of figuring out over and over again, how to do the things we thought we needed to do on the ground in the context of the end of the Soviet Union, the rise of neoliberalism, the uh, shift in the financial and economic relationships between the colonized world or the newly independent world and big manufacturers and capital and banks in the global north, I thought I better study political economy in a rigorous way. I'd been, like many of us, self-taught. So I looked around and thought I would probably get a degree in planning because planning is one of the few disciplines in the US uh, higher education system where one can study economics without becoming a neoclassical trained economist. And I looked at a couple of other programs, sociology world systems, really interesting looking cultural studies program, but planning kept attracting me. One day, my partner and I were at the Every Few Years Rethinking Marxism conference that uh, is held at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. And we did what we do always when we go to conferences. We split up and he went to listen to somebody and I went to listen to somebody so that we could get together over a snack or a meal and teach each other what we learned. We got together over a snack or a meal after the sessions we'd attended. And he said, you're going to Rutgers, but you're not going in planning. Geography is what you should do. He heard a talk by Neil Smith, who turned 
out to be my advisor at Rutgers and eventually uh, moved to the Graduate Center and indeed he founded the center where China and I have gotten to know each other this year. And I thought, wow, I haven't studied geography since I was 12 years old. What is this? And then I remembered when I studied geography when I was 12 years old, this was in New Haven, Connecticut, United States of America. One of the things we studied was different modes of production. So I understood about communism and socialism as well as capitalism. I learned that in school in 1962. So it made perfect sense to me in 1992 that I might go get a degree in geography. And just to conclude this section of our conversation, geography can compel us to pull back the veils that disguise nature as culture and disguise culture as nature. And that can also allow us to put things back together to see how things might fit together differently from the way that they fit. Geography is a resolutely materialist program of study for those who take materialist study seriously. I mean, you can bullshit as much in geography as in, as in any other discipline, but there's the opportunity to think about real things in the real world and their dynamics. Thank you so much, Dr. Gilmore. First of all, it was just fascinating to hear your reflections on growing up between 1962 and 92, the leaps and connections between learning geography in school and then approaching it as a disciplinary orientation later in your life. How did the theorization of racial capitalism, the Black Marxist tradition, and um, this phrase, infrastructures of feeling, which you describe in your work, and I absolutely love, how did these ways of thinking about the world shape your own activism and your own theory of change? Let me add a little bit more about my formation as a young person. I was raised in a family of activists, of political actors who themselves were raised in families of activists over the long fight against Jim Crow for full emancipation, against super exploitation of workers for unions, for example. My grandfather and father both organized unions for access to education, kindergarten through PhD, for adequate housing, healthcare, all of that. That is, that's what formed me. You know, my parents went to high school, so they had a pretty good education. They lived for the people. They're not famous. Well, my dad's famous in New Haven. They're not famous, <laughs> but they're kind of part of this, you know, enormous energy of black freedom movement that Cedric Robinson put a lot of thought into in his great book, Black Marxism, not Black Marxists, Black Marxism. And what Robinson, who became a mentor and friend, who I met indeed in the late 1980s, 
What Robinson does in that book and the two rather short companion books to Black Marxism, that is Anthropology of Marxism and Black Social Movements, is to think very hard about how a certain kind of, let's call it classical historical materialist analysis might be inadequately attentive to the very dynamics and aspirations and forms of being in the world that underlay, for example, the Black freedom movement, anti-colonialism in Africa, anti-apartheid in South Africa, and so forth. What is missing in a certain understanding of historical materialism that the long traditions for emancipation, which is to say for realizing entire ways of life, might shed light on. And so he was very inspired indeed by a lot of the uh, radical militant trade unionists in Southern Africa, particularly in South Africa, who had been talking for a long time about uh, what they conceptualized as racial Fordism. So there's Fordism, which kind of put into the world of capitalist manufacturing, a distribution of a larger portion of surplus than workers had been able to capture. So that, as Henry Ford put it, the people who make the cars can buy the cars, i.e. let us produce a mass consumer society by shifting the wage. So South African workers, Southern African workers said, yeah, but that is not straightforward. There is a differentiation that we see and that we live. And so they proposed racial Fordism, which actually helps to explain Fordism as it unrolled in Michigan uh, with Henry Ford at the helm. So uh, Robinson conceptualized a way of thinking capitalism that to me is essential for understanding how capitalism saves capitalism from capitalism. And that it does so in part through the kind of sinuous syncretic energy that capitalism in any actually existing political economy or industrial sector uh, performs. And this syncretism welds difference into itself, welds difference into itself. So if we think that way, then we should conclude that all capitalism is racial capitalism. You need no white people and no black people for it to be capitalism, or it could be all black people and capitalism. Uh, racial capitalism, excuse me. So thinking all of that also compelled me to take seriously the, the insights that Robinson and many others 
developed in their writing and in their speaking and in their community work by looking very closely at the various kinds of self-organization that people, whether uh, in maroon societies or in the U.S. South during Reconstruction or in the Caribbean or around the Mediterranean, wherever they might be, those forms of self-organization give us insights into something that Robinson called the ontological totality. The ontological totality. It's a mouthful, but it makes us stop and think how the realization of emancipation is something greater than the absence of unfreedom. And later on, you know, I hope we'll, we'll talk a bit about contemporary abolition. But if we think of abolition or emancipation as something greater than the absence of unfreedom, then what's the presence? And is the presence something thicker and richer and of a longer duration than sort of technical incorporation into a citizenry? The answer has got to be yes. And why the answer has got to be yes is obvious. If the answer were not yes, the fact that that technical incorporation into a citizenry has never achieved either between and among nation states or within differentiated groupings inside nation states, anything like equality, we know, we know from that that this ontological totality is what keeps us together. So I wanna say one more thing about this. And that is that there is a way, which I recognize that Robinson's kind of thinking and the thinking of people who have been deeply influenced by him can be taken, understood to be or accused of being idealist, that there's some kind, of, some kind of transcendence that we're all realizing. And I think that if we do the kind of work that Robinson did and that I do, Claudia Jones, many, many other people that China is doing with her research and so forth, of thinking in the thick and changing detail of how people are on the ground, we can kind of put to rest that accusation while constantly in our analytical work, being mindful of not reproducing idealism as somehow a transcendence to which we will or should aspire. Ruthie, thank you for this really stunning analysis of the ways that we can think about the legacy of Cedric Robinson, of Black Marxism more generally, and of what racial capitalism means as it's becoming really a, an important framework for a lot of scholars and activists today. 
some of the things that you just mentioned, for example, the possibilities for self-organization, maroon societies, the U.S. South during Reconstruction. These are deeply agrarian questions. So I wondered if you could, as you suggest, we have an enduring relevance of the classic Marxist agrarian question uh, for understanding regimes of capital today and uneven development. And these agrarian questions are deeply enmeshed with contemporary political, social, economic, and cultural challenges of, of, of existence across the world, not just in the U.S., where I know your research is most focused. So could you tell us more about this concept of the agrarian question today, what its enduring relevance is for the kinds of questions you're asking in your research and in your activism, and in what ways, perhaps as a way of looking back at your first book, in what ways carceral geographies can be understood through that rural lens or through the agrarian question lens? Well, let me tell a story, and that is, We at the Center for Place, Culture, and Politics have been more often than not, more urban than not, mainly because Neil Smith was an urbanist and although he was also Mr. Card-Carrying Geographer, I mean, till his final breath, as much as the center paid very deep attention to questions of region, new, formations on the surface of the earth, globalization, all of that, it tended to be very urbanist in in its annual obsessions. But about five or six years ago, maybe seven now, a researcher who has a long history of political organizing and activism in Brazil and Latin America and also the US, came to us to talk about a project that she and others had been working on for some time. Her name is Dr. Maria Luisa Mendonça. She's Brazilian, I think dual citizen, Brazilian US. And she, who had been a co-founder of the World Social Forum and other remarkable and ambitiously global projects, had in her research as a PhD student in geography in Brazil and also in working closely with many formations in Brazil and beyond, including the MST, uh, the Landless Workers Movement, and also Via Campesina, had been learning about how land grabbing, which we tend to ascribe to the usual capitalist actors who want to transform the jungle into grazing land for McDonald's beef or some other area of a certain kind of agricultural production to commodity production. In the context of all of that, what Misa and her colleagues learned was that among the many financial services organizations participating in land grabs was the teacher's retirement program that most people who work in education or in the nonprofit nonprofit sector in the U.S. depend on to be able to retire because there is no public pension system in the United States, full stop. So we could see 
global forces, you know, in the realm of the global north, where people, the dependent people, those dependent on TIAA CREF, are, you know, by and large doing something good to benign, like teaching people things. And that good to benign requires that we accept our contractually deferred compensation by way of the displacement of people and resources in the global south, as well as here in the north, the displacement of people and resources from the land or from certain productive relationships so that TIA CREF can make the return on investment necessary to pay us our pension pittances when we retire. We agreed that we at the CPCP would launch the first report in the English language on this struggle. And so the agrarian became, thanks to Misa's intervention and the work that she and her comrades did, something that we returned to over and over again in some way, centrally or marginally, in our annual deliberations. To the point that last year we realized, well, year and a half ago, we realized we really needed to put an entire year plus into thinking the agrarian question today. I tell the story so that people who are listening understand this was not an idle academic exercise. None of what we do at the center is an idle academic exercise. And the fact is that any research center has generally the autonomy and the means to avoid the idle academic exercise and throw the thinking and resourcefulness of people who gather to study a problem toward finding solutions as well as, you know, just broadcasting the facts of it far and wide. The TIAA CREF struggle has grown over time and there are some new developments in it. And in fact, let me take this opportunity to say that on May 5th at 10 a.m. Eastern Daylight Time, Misa and I will be in conversation for two hours talking about these questions. And we'll be talking about the scale of agriculture, the shift to commodity production, the fact that uh, land grabbing has to go hand in hand with an expulsion or exclusion that is most readily managed through criminalization, right? that organized abandonment, which is what expulsion from the land or expulsion from certain kinds of production is, uh, generally we find has its contouring shape through a rise and intensification of the ap applied forces of organized violence to people in a, a number of ways, whether people are criminalized one by one by one or 
uh, terrorized or killed or pushed off the land. I mean, there are just so many stories that we can talk about. And I think that, you know, as many people who may be listening to our conversation have their focus on West Asia and North Africa, we can see the same kinds of uh, relations unfolding there, plus the bombs. And I don't say that lightly. The question of small producers in the global food commodity chains is also one that really inspires a lot of our thinking because in fact, you know, objectively speaking, 70% of all of the food that goes into circulation that people eventually eat is produced, is made by small producers. That doesn't mean that they're independent. Indeed, they're generally dependent on the way that sharecroppers are on a commodity or tenant farmers are on a commodity. And yet thinking about that 70%, I think gives us some insights into the kinds of struggles that could be happening on the ground. And that if we look closely, we see are happening on the ground. Again, whether we're talking about the MST or where uh, China's research is in Syria or somewhere else, it's happening, it's happening, it's happening. And what are the ways that these struggles might be connected as forcefully as the big firms that control food commodities are connected. So there are the four big firms. What are they? Archer, Midland, Daniels, Bungie, Cargill, and Louis-Dreyfus. And then there's the fifth one, which is Kafka, which is the firm that has arisen and grown really rapidly in China, in the People's Republic of China. So those five firms control a good deal of the circulation of food in the world. And yet we've got to believe and act on the belief that 70% of the producers are small producers and therefore there are possibilities on the ground. If we had had the possibility to, to produce one of our normal annual conferences, we would have organized the conference elementally. By that, I mean, we would have had a whole section on fire, a whole section on earth, one on water and one on air in order to, you know, kind of raise up all of these related questions that have to do with production, the exhaustion of soil, the fact that there is more water than ever in, in liquid form in the hydrologic cycle, that liquid form means that plus the general warming of the Earth's surface means that sea, um, thermal expansion of the sea is gobbling up coastlines, pushing people away at the same time that the uh, availability of fresh water is diminished because of global warming as well as because of water theft as, as well as land theft. I mean, we could go on and on thinking about that. There was an explosion at an oil refinery 
in Java today or yesterday, I think. We're talking now on March the 29th, 2021. And to think about that refinery and the explosion clearly visible from outer space, just like the ship stuck in the Suez Canal was visible from outer space, but also all of the fires, the seemingly perpetual fires that have raged in Indonesia and beyond because the change in cultivation in order to produce things like palm oil has made it impossible to control, protect the forest and let the people who use the forest flourish. And when I say let the people who use the forest flourish, I don't mean that there is some kind of ancient, authentic, indigenous practice that somehow everybody should go back to. Surely there are, as I think I argued earlier in our conversation, practices that have stretched through time that shape things that we do, whether or not we are aware of them. But my point about the forest, just as my point about water and land and air, has to do with the possibilities for more people to realize, fully realize, their aspirations, their self-organized at whatever scale aspirations in life, rather than constantly fighting against vulnerability to premature death, which is what we see over and over and over again. I've been thinking a lot as everybody has during the pandemic who's had anything delivered to their house about Amazon, about Um, the structure of that firm, uh, about how it has a global reach that has changed dramatically even in this year that we've been locked down. For example, uh, Amazon has developed delivery relations with firms on the ground in Pakistan that hadn't existed, you know, only a year ago. I mean, that's just an example, not the example. So we have Amazon, probably the first trillionaire in the United States will be Jeff Bezos. And Amazon also is a firm that is well known for the ravages that uh, it exerts on its workers in the warehouses and on the streets and roads making deliveries. Some of my colleagues are quietly activists are a couple of economists, economic geographers who run a little tiny shop in Los Angeles, California, called the Economic Roundtable. And they have been studying Amazon for years, and they produced a report that everybody can see. It's free and available, and we'll put it in the resources with the interview, uh, called Too Big to Govern. And what they did in their preliminary report was to just look in great detail at every single cost, which is to say, not just a money cost, but also cost to quality of life, quality of roads and so forth, that Amazon externalizes from its firm to households, individuals, communities, metropolitan governments and so forth. And they put this whole thing together air quality, you name it. 
And what they want to do eventually, if they have the resources, is to just take the somewhat localized study that was mostly uh, supported by the Los Angeles County Labor Federation and extend it to really a global study. So there's Amazon that connects the world that as again, my colleagues say is too big to govern. And yet we know that if you get a box from Amazon at your house and you look at it, you already see the world, the outside of the box, wherever you are, right? And you have to ask yourself where the cardboard came from and then open the box and what is in the box, what kinds of packing materials are in the box. Is it those ecologically correct packing peanuts that are made from corn? And if they are, where was that corn grown? And why was it grown for that not to feed people? If it used to be grown to, for feed, was it grown for hog feed or human feed? You know, we can go on and on and on. What, whatever is in the box, we find assembly in East Asia. We find other things in West Asia. You know, the box, you know, contains the whole world. And in fact, as far as I'm concerned, the kind of vision that could and should compel people who are trying to help make abolition geographies requires that we look again behind the veil and see what the box is made of and then kind of trace out what kinds of political relations already exist or can be put into motion because of what's concentrated in the box. So right now there's a huge struggle going on. Amazon workers in Alabama are voting on a union. Whether or not they fail, this is a huge movement that I think will extend. And interestingly enough, the Amazon workers site in Bessemer was the site of a steel plant that famously written about by my dear friend, geographer Bobby M. Wilson in a book called America's Johannesburg. And America's Johannesburg is called that for a reason. It's a city that was founded about the same time as South Africa's Johannesburg. They're about a couple of years apart in age. Uh, cities that arose in uh, extractive slash manufacturing formations with a very freshly made rigid hierarchy of racialized labor in both places. And that this is kind of the 1870s, right in the run up to the scramble for Africa that Birmingham and Johannesburg came into being as a way for capitalism to save capitalism from capitalism. So there's that Amazon. And then at the same time, there is Amazon, which is the forest, which is the lungs of the world or one of the planet's kind of big lung formations. I think there's a forest in, that spans part, part of the DRC that's sort of the, the balance of those lungs. So trying to think those things together, again, gives us the opportunity 
to connect struggles, to show that environmental struggle and political struggle, economic struggle, and the regionalization of the world, which is to say the way the world is partitioned and repartitioned through the energies of capitalist production should give us clues for how to put ourselves together to fight against these forms of being. As you were speaking about Amazon, the corporation, and the current struggles of uh, Amazon workers in Alabama who are trying to unionize, it made me think of the kind of polemical argument. There was a book published by Verso called The People's Republic of Walmart, where Leigh Phillips and Michael Rosworski argue that these major multinational companies they've already established a sort of infrastructure of what a large-scale planned economy looks like. And they're kind of, again, asking in a very uh, provocative manner, can this large infrastructure be somehow transformed and become democratic? Can Can it be transformed to work for us? Is there a way in which that this thing that we have understood as being tied to all of these carceral geographies and, you know, extractive economies globally, can this be transformed into some sort of socialist future? It's a really provocative argument. And after, you know, hearing everything that you've talked about, not only about Amazon, but also about racial capitalism, I'm just curious what you think about that. Well, that is such a great question. And I need to confess to everyone who's listening, I have not yet read that book. I'm familiar with the argument, but I haven't read it. So if I get something horribly wrong, writers forgive me. On the one hand, I love thinking about the transformation of what is to what we want. And you know, we see examples kind of dotted around there, you know, the factory takeovers in Argentina, in Spain you know, the fabled May 68, those kinds of activities have happened. Certainly my colleagues who've been writing about Amazon, as you obviously thought, or you wouldn't have asked me the question you asked, have imagined and been inspired by imagining that Amazon should be a public utility. It just should be. In fact, public utilities ought to be public utilities, but that's another topic, not unrelated. So thinking through that Walmart could be, because it's got all the pieces necessary, seems to me to be a good way of enlarging our political ambitions beyond, let us say, the beauty of mutual aid that is maybe not adequate to everything that we might need or want. So that's one thing. The second thing that comes to mind is, of course, and perhaps, again, my colleagues who wrote that book have um, considered this point, that for Walmart to be as it is, there have to be all of these people, to go back to the 70% of producers, who are producing to Walmart's, Walmart's something of a monopsony. It's something of a a sole buyer or one of just a few buyers. And the market power that Walmart has means that the intermediary firms that are organizing whatever producers to produce 
whatever, are taking it out of the producers in order to, to realize the profits they realize, which means then that were Walmart to become the People's Republic of Walmart tomorrow, what is the effect that radiates through the world that has made Walmart so fabulously profitable as it is? So I want to say something else about this kind of thinking, because I do find it really appealing. The economist, James O'Connor, published a book, I don't know, almost 50 years ago, called The Fiscal Crisis of the State. It's one of my kind of Bibles of how to think about both the strength and weakness of imagining and acting on the political idea that we could seize the state. Now, 50 years ago, as capitalism, especially large banks and corporations in the United States and a good deal of the overdeveloped world, had kind of run up against a limit in the rate of profit, not profitability, but the rate of profit, kind of sought to, in general, externalize to the state more and more of the expenses that otherwise would have to be paid to workers. So, you know, health support. And it was right at that moment that I talk about in Golden Gulag, where that was happening, but also the similar fraction of capitalism was saying, you know what, we're just not going to pay anymore for the public. So instead of collectively dumping money there and then having others dump money there and externalizing to the state certain expenses associated with production, reproduction, and social reproduction, we're just going to leave everybody high and dry and let them work it out. This is all at this moment. But what O'Connor argued in the book, which was really interesting, is, well, look, as the state in its welfare functions gets bigger and bigger, there is more and more of a potentially mutually recognizable unity between the clients and the you know, agents of the state, right? So somebody sitting across the table from somebody who's dealing with your aid to dependent children application is more like you than different from you. So will this possibly turn into, um, as it were, a moment to seize the state, right? Solidarity. And thinking that gives us some insights, but also some pretty sobering lessons as well. Now, we can go elsewhere outside of the United States and see, for example, that in the overdeveloped world, that the absolute organized abandonment of workers and their households and communities is not so profound as in the US, however you look at it. So outside of the US, it is not as normal for people to be employed at will by their employers. Thinking with O'Connor or thinking with the People's Republic of Walmart does the important work of compelling people, not just letting people, but compelling people to think expansively and ambitiously about what it is we're trying to achieve. And I think that's a really good thing. It's not idle for those who are listening going, 
oh, grump, 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 don't you know how hard this is? Well, yeah, that's the point. <laughs> the point is it's hard. It's hard what the Amazon workers are doing. It's hard what people have done when they have on the one hand fought for, say through unions, for protections and opportunities. And on the other hand, at the same time, fought to democratize the union from within, right? That these things are happening. When we have in the California context gotten many, many, many unions to line up against the guards union rather than with them because of political understanding that became clear after years of work. It wasn't self-evident. So I think that thinking big is absolutely essential. You are listening to the Environment and Context series on Status al This is Huma Gupta. My guest host today is China Sajadian, and we are speaking with Dr. Ruth Wilson-Gilmore about abolition and why it must be green, red, and international. Ruthie, I want to pick up on a thread that came up in the extraordinary uh, range of really exciting things that you've shared with us about thinking big, about the global scale of, of the kinds of questions that we're discussing and the imperative that those questions must address. And specifically, I want to think about something that you mentioned regarding the regionalization of the world, that is the ways that the world is partitioned by by capitalism and all of the forms of inequality that conjugate to our current reality under capitalism. I'd like to ask you, your first book offers a very specific story of prisons in California. Um, and at the same time, you gesture to the global forces at work in your analysis. For example, uh, you allude even in this interview, but also in the book and in a lot of your articles that we've seen, the ways that warfare at home has been linked to warfare abroad. From the golden age of capitalism, what you've very rightly called military Keynesianism following World War II, through the world recessions that began in the 1970s. For our Jadalia and Status Hour listeners, who are mostly focused on the Middle East, can you tell us more about how carcerality and criminalization in the U.S. can be narrated as a global story? In other words, what can those of us who are researching the Middle East and places that are affected by the U.S.-led war on terror take away from, from your research and from the kinds of material that you've shared with us today? Thank you for that question. What I'm going to try to do in answering the question is avoid the tendency that many of us have to narrate catastrophe. It's something I learned re actually reading Primo Levi, that narrating catastrophe is not the goal. But I have to talk about some catastrophic things in order to get where I'd like to go. So the partition and repartition of the world is ongoing and it's deadly. It's deadly. And we have lived through a period of, I guess, about half a century, kind of long tail end of the long decolonizing movement, which overlaps, as you know, the inception and growth of neoliberalism. Those things happen together and we can see evidence of it if we look at what 
the economist Brown tells us about debt servitude in decolonized world, which is say the neo-colonized world, already in the late 1970s, right? The U.S. and the U.K. and the other weapons-producing and military-deploying imperial states do what they do. If they do deploy their militaries, they also sell a lot of equipment. And there's all of the weaponry sales, which then has a huge industrial footprint, which then by extension has a few huge extractive footprint. And for a weapon to be a tool and not a luxury, it has to be used. So, you know, the question of weaponry and the question of military, you know, underlies so many of the ongoing struggles in the region of North Africa and West Asia, and in particular, and pardon me if I'm getting way out of my lane, but in particular, um, I just want to shine a bright light on proxy wars, which make it possible for the U.S. to pretend under whatever president that they are reducing the size and activity of the U.S. military in the world when all they're doing is subcontracting effectively U.S. military activity to proxies. So, you know, uh, I've read a number of papers on, on this topic. And of course, we see a variety of explanations for proxy wars, obviously enables another round of sales. It, it creates, you know, debt relations because those sales are made through the extension of debt. It also somewhat indemnifies certain political classes from any kind of close interrogation by those whose opinions matter. So we can all talk about this stuff. Our opinions don't matter. They are indemnified from the fact of producing the kind of premature death that results in shortened lives in Yemen, in Palestine, in Syria, and so forth. At the same time, however much the big military forces have or have not reduced their military activity outside of the borders of their countries, and here I'm thinking the big ones are US, Russia, China, but also Israel and a number of other countries, France, that the net effect of their military activity, whether it's moving ships around the sea or planes through the air or troops from one place to another or weapons to one place or another is to make a measurable contribution to global warming. That climate change is in part a product of militarism, full stop. So we talked earlier about how climate change is uh, compelling people to move from where they are to where they can make their lives. Now, whether that where they are is along coastlines that are being drowned by sea level rise or from interior areas that are suffering desertification 
or if not desertification are suffering because the water table is exhausted to grow commodity crops or because the water table is poisoned because of the pesticides and arsenic and so forth that are laid onto crops kind of makes no difference. People are pushed, people are pushed, people are pushed. And the pushing of people by those forces as well as the forces of war from where they had lived to places where they might live is, of course, in some, the global migration story today. So we see that states, as well as association of states like the EU, are paying states outside of their borders to effectively put people who are moving to preserve their lives into detention camps to keep them from crossing the border. So it's an old story that, how do we, how do we used to put it? We are here because you were there. So all of the migrants who are moving all over the world, whether it's Cameroonians moving by way of Ecuador to get to the United States, or Syrians moving by way of Turkey to get to the EU, or Senegalese moving by way of Tunisia to get to Portugal, or you know, Central Americans moving through Mexico to get to the United States or to Canada, makes no difference. The fact is, People are pushed into motion because of these enormous relations, which themselves are partitioning and repartitioning the world. So that energy use is causing climate change at the same time that in the US and in the UK and elsewhere, the part of military policy is to keep an eye on people who are becoming long distance migrants because of climate change. So it's almost corny, except for it's tragic that the very forces that are producing the vulnerability for people are then policing the people who have thus been made vulnerable. This is the story that abolitionists are trying to tell from the local to the global. Insofar as the book that I wrote about California is an examination of four factors of production, land, labor, finance, capital, and state capacity. It is a book, although specifically about a place in a particular span of time, that people can use methodologically to think about someplace else. And I say that not because it's a cookie cutter kind of theoretical intervention. It's just a theoretical intervention that makes things available for thinking through, manipulating, using, turning into the form that would be productive to learn whatever it is one needs to learn for the purposes of political work. And I wanna say one other thing about the partition and repartition of the world. And I've already touched a couple or three times on a theme that I've been calling for some years now, water and class struggle. 
So, you know, all of this vulnerability that people experience either because the waters rise and there are floods in New Orleans or, or because the water can't be drunk or used many places is to me an element of an elemental class struggle, water and class struggle. There was a classic book you all probably know called Oil and Class Struggle that I think was first published in the late 60s, early 70s, and then it was republished. And I read it a few times and it rather deeply compelled me to think about water in a similar way. Last fall, actually, I uh, taught a course, a studio course, with my doctoral students in geography. And the course was called Carceral Geographies, the way my studio courses work, is I present to the students a problem. We do some reading together so that we can think methodologically about how to turn an interest into a question that then is adequate to investigating a problem and coming up with some insights that otherwise we wouldn't have. The students in the classes work in group and they do really rapid research. It's a studio course over the course of say 13 weeks based on the interest and the questions that they've put together. So in carceral geographies, all the students were great, but I want to tell you about one of the projects. And the students eventually came to be known their, their cluster as the pirates. And they were over a fairly short, but very intensive period, uh, come up with thinking about Iraq, the Red Sea and the Indian Ocean, and then the kind of passageway through the Straits of Malacca, i.e. they were really inspired by Lala Khalili's work and other work, you know, thinking about logistics and thinking the carceral and trying to put them together. So the students wound up doing these three case studies in their group. They did one on the Seychelles Islands and how the Seychelles became this kind of prison island place over time and why. So the students who did that were Patrick Didaw and Maitri Prashad. Then two students, Chloe Truong Jones and Suki Kim, zeroed in on Basra and the redevelopment that's happening in Basra and how Eric Prince and Frontier Solutions is all over the place, even as Basra is presenting its developmentalist image of itself to the world as this glorious, glassy, lovely, come here and be. And thinking Basra as the port that it's been for, I don't know, 5,000 years or something. And, and this iteration, again, compels us to think about the partition and repartition of the world and how these forces congeal there, operate, and to what end. And the third topic was Sarah Khalid and Tenjo Lim. And they took up the ancient quest, like 500 years, almost 450 year quest to cut a canal across the Crop Peninsula it's in order to be able to bypass the Straits of Malacca. And to this day, more freight goes through the Straits of Malacca than any other single narrow place, including Suez. So they 
kind of put together a historical geography of that region, but also to think about now and think about it in carceral terms. So those are just some examples of how starting from Golden Gulag, prison surplus crisis and opposition globalizing California can enable people to go places and think about things that might seem unrelated and to think about them in ways that avoids the kind of mechanistic insistence that this is like that. That there are patterns that matter that enable us to see and similarities and connections that we actually have to trace out. And that's the challenge I think that we on the left are constantly refreshing and trying to live rather than a simple one-off, this is like this. Because those similarities so frequently just die on the vine. Thank you so much, Dr. Gilmore, for just taking the time to teach us <laughs> so many things. I think both China and I are going to carry these phrases, these lessons, these insights with us for years and years to come. And they're going to flow through our own writing and our own research as we formulate questions and post them you know, to the worlds that we inhabit and, and work in. But as we're thinking about similarities and difference, right, identifying those patterns, but also understanding the limitations, I was wondering if we could shift the conversation a bit to the question of time, specifically the idea of temporal horizons for some of the changes and that we are working towards. You know, you talked earlier about the hard work of activist labor, right? And organizing labor. And it is a labor of love. It is thankless. It is it is not something that comes with a lot of glory, maybe for a few, <laughs> but uh, for the vast majority of us, we're going to live and die in the struggle. And that's perfectly okay. In fact, my friend Lawrence Barriner loves this quote that death is only the end if you assume the story is about you. And I think that in order to become a really good activist, I've learned uh, as I've grown from a teenage activist to a grown woman, that really decentering yourself and really understanding that the results or the changes that are to come are going to happen in a time that may be beyond your own lifetime. And that's perfectly okay that you're actually just part of something that is larger and something that maybe you can't even see and conceive of. But as we talk about that, I think there are some very present day ramifications for how we imagine these temporal horizons. So I'm thinking about how people imagine the temporal horizon of abolition versus that of climate change. I think among youth activists, you know, I'm thinking of the Sunrise Movement and youth activists, frankly, all over the, the globe are really, really concerned about the existential issue of climate because they believe it has to be addressed today in order to preserve their future. At the same time, while they recognize that the project of abolition is equally important, they need to fight for that world as well. I think sometimes it's still imagined as a less urgent project that will take place in a distant utopian future, maybe in a sort of idealistic future. And I know there are racial differences and experiences of how we experience the world that inform what is urgent and what is seen as less urgent. But I'm wondering kind of what your take is on some of these new movements, because since last year, abolition is on everyone's mind, but it's been increasingly understood as abolition of police. 
it's you know been linked to the defund movement. Even with the Green New Deal, though, right, there are activists who are pushing back and critiquing its limitations, calling for an end to both carbon and carceral dependence. They're calling for a Green New Deal for decarceration that, again, is not just about absence, but about presence, right? The presence of a housing guarantee, of a jobs guarantee, of healthcare for all, and, and, and on and on and on. And this is what we're fighting for. But when it comes to the state and particularly carceral states and how they imagine climate futures and how they design climate adaptation protocols like the Paris Accords or urban resilience frameworks for cities in the U.S., they often flatten these intertwined histories of carbonization and carceration that you've so beautifully laid out for us in this interview. And they, they treat climate change as a technical problem that demands a technocratic solution. So you know, I'm not asking you to solve this puzzle for us, but I want to ask kind of what, what do you do <laughs> and what should we do in the face of the carceral state's imagination of the climate future? Because I feel afraid that their imagination is going to overtake our own efforts to make this much bigger than some sort of technical problem that we're facing. It's a really good question and a very challenging one. And you embedded in the question so many clues for where to go to answer it. And I appreciate that. In fact, both of you have done that with all of your questions. And I really like that. So the first thing is that what climate change and criminalization have in common is that they both seem to be technical problems that can be solved with technical solutions. And in, in fact, while there are techniques that we could use to change the course of history, those techniques are political and social, and they're not sort of within the realm of the technocracy. So that is the first thing I want to say, and, you know, it should be said over and over and over again. And, you know, it's really tough when thinking about questions like decriminalization and reduction of use of fossil fuels. And people put their shoulders up and put their hands out and they say, but what are we going to do until? It's always the same question. So however much young people are energized about fossil fuel dependency, it is still the case that Many, 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 many people put their shoulders up and their hands out and say, what are we going to do until? So that's the first thing. Second thing related to that has to do with the imaginative horizon that many people are kind of cursed with. And this is not to say in the least that people are somehow dupes of a system. What it is to say is, you know, we think with what we have available to think with. And therefore, you know, there's a narrative arc that I, I write in my book and, and it's one that whether or not people could recite it has uh, shaped what a lot of people think criminalization is about. And that is crime is the problem, prison is the solution. And if they think that way, then what happens when you try to break it is they'll say, well, crime is the problem, so what's your solution? Like the crime part doesn't go away. And my friend Mariam Kaba calls them the solutionists. So let's keep going back and forth between criminalization and climate change. 
For many people, the struggle over climate change seems to be a struggle that requires those on the surface of the planet who have less to say, fine, our quality of life should never achieve the level of the quality of life of people in the global north, which the three of us are, because the achievement of that quality of life has wreaked havoc on the planet. This is a way of thinking. So that, of course, inspires a lot of, let's say, recrimination, if not resentment, if not, you know, what on earth. So then that raises a question about the various kinds of safety that maybe attach these two topics together. Safety kind of in the household and the community from you know, whatever kind of interpersonal harms might or might not be likely and safety in how we live from climate change and the various atmospheric and other detrimental effects that will kind of shorten, not life on the planet, human life on the planet. I mean, I am actually convinced that it's not life, it's human life that's gonna go. And for some people, human life going is very attractive, which brings us back to the grim question of who is supposed to suffer restrictions so that cumulative impacts of climate change can be reduced and mitigated. So when I was in graduate school in the early 90s and people were still disagreeing, good faith, I'd say, disagreeing about whether or not there was, I mean, what we said then was global warming, not climate change. Is there global warming? If so, is it anthropogenic? You know, how can you make policy if you don't really know? A lot of that good faith debate has turned into a kind of general consensus that is mostly dominated by technocrats and then the naysayers who are not going to change what they say because it's not about study. It's about something else. I suppose where the question has to go is kind of back down to the ground where people actually live and work. And to ask questions like the questions that communities around copper mines in the Copper Belt in Southern Africa are asking, and that is, tell us, show us, prove to us, in fact, give us the opportunity to see and how taking this copper out of the ground improves the lives of the people here as well as people elsewhere. That kind of question. Or the kind of work that, again, I'll, I'll mention her again, Mariam Kaba has done in her really wonderfully summarized in her new book, We Do This Till We Free Us, where, you know, all kinds of people in all kinds of situations have figured out all kinds of ways to reduce, not totally eliminate, but significantly reduce vulnerability to interpersonal harm. And all of the other things that count as quote unquote crime are easily remedied. It's the interpersonal harm part that people should worry about. And 
people are working on that. And in fact, what brought people like Mariam and me and Angela Davis and other people who are well known to abolition was being tired of having people we loved hurt and a system that was only hurting more people. We were just tired. We weren't like utopian idealists in the ivory tower. We were tired, tired people. So one of the ways that you know, thinking abolition in the expansive way it must be thought to be is already saying, if you only focus on police or only focus on prisons and jails, you will have missed abolition because abolition requires that we change everything, which means climate is part of it, which means decolonization is part of it. In fact, I had a conversation with a few people in the States and in New Zealand and an unceded land uh, in North America, in which we were talking about decolonization and abolition. And I kind of refused the and, which is to say that in my view, you can't have abolition without decolonization, but I've already encountered decolonization that doesn't have abolition. It's tough to think through. The Red Nation, which has recently published The Red Deal, is trying really hard to connect these seemingly incommensurate temporalities and spatialities, if you will. Let's go back to, to how you framed the question, Homa. But the fact is that this period that we've been living through in the US and that has sprung up in other parts of the world is a relatively new phenomenon. It happened fast. It might seem eternal to you because although you're grown, you're young, but it happened in my lifetime. And it was like, boom. And if we list the countries with the highest incarceration rates, we will see that wherever inequality is the deepest, incarceration is the highest. It's corny. It's so obvious. And if you look at the G7 or if you look at the BRICS or put them together as I've done in a variety of not really beautiful visual displays, we can see these relationships. So then the time required to fix the climate and the time required to undo the carceral almost kind of blend into one time in this telling of how we got to where we're at, or at least they should. Because as I said earlier, there will be more people in camps and detention centers, whether or not there's some piece of paper that says you were convicted of a crime and you are being held. In fact, if you weren't, it doesn't make it better, it makes it different. It means you can be held indefinitely. Like the peculiarity of Guantanamo gone as global as it already has in the case of people who've been seized in the context of wars. And I wanna say something else about abolition at this point that needs to be said. I imagine that some people who've been listening to me talk are, probably a little taken aback, if not actively skeptical, 
when I make this claim about abolition requiring we change everything and therefore thinking decolonization, demilitarization, all of those things is to think abolition. And the reason I insist that this is true is because of, again, how I pull back the veil of, you know, that naturalizes crime and pull back the veil that makes culture seem natural and saw how in the California case, surpluses that could have gone together and fitted together in a wide variety of ways without for a second discounting that somebody else somewhere else might suffer because of those surpluses. But let's stay in California for a moment. They could have gone together in other ways. They went together in prison after prison after prison. So that gives us some insights into what criminality as well as what climate change is made of. By calling the opposition and the life-making opposition to these forces and these relations, abolition, is not, in my view, to invent something new, but rather to echo what uh, Kwame Ture, when I think he was still calling himself Stokely Carmichael said about Karl Marx and communism. He said, Marx observed it. Marx observed communism and wrote about it and did the analytical work to come to an understanding of what he observed. Cedric Robinson observed the black freedom movement and observed the black radical tradition and wrote about it. He didn't invent it. Didn't invent it. There aren't things to recite, there are only things to rehearse. So I guess what I'm saying here is that I and many others, people I'm in constant conversation with who are dotted around the planet. So this is not a US-based thing at all. Today, sort of see, experience, perceive, are part of abolition that is kind of moving episodically through time and space. And the poet Anne Carson wrote, it is easier to tell a story of how people wound one another than of what binds them together. And what abolitionists are trying to do is perceive and participate in and understand how people are bound together. So in some cases, those are political parties. They might be, a variety of communist parties. They might be, you know, Podemos. They might be the, the new uh, democratic front that has been growing and consolidating in South Africa. It might be the land occupations there. It's the MST that's celebrated 37 years. It is, you know, many, many, many different kinds of movements that seem very strongly to be realizing aspirations of the people in such a way that the kinds of harms that we have been talking about today, militarism, criminalization, climate change, are not the natural, necessary, and inevitable feature of how we are on this Earth's surface together. I was really struck by what you said about 
the relationship between decolonization and abolition, that while you have seen decolonization without abolition, abolition requires and demands decolonization. I wonder if it would help our movements if, you know, I think what I'm hearing here is that it would help us to actually embrace and think with abolition, as opposed to think that abolition is its own separate project. I also was really struck by what you were saying about Karl Marx being an observer of communism and, and writing that story, because Karl Marx is also an observer of the idea, the figure of the criminal. In Theories of Surface Value, he has this funny uh, apologist conception of the productivity of all professions. And he writes, the criminal produces not only crimes, but also criminal law. And with this also the professor who gives lectures on criminal law and the inevitable compendium in which the same professor throws his lectures onto the general market as commodities. This brings with it augmentation of national wealth. Now, of course, this is a little bit tongue-in-cheek, it's, it's, it's meant to be provocative, but the productivity of the figure of the criminal, the productivity of the figure of the refugee, the, the homeless, the, the migrant, uh, legal and or the so-called illegal migrant, right? These are incredibly productive figures that are integral to the accumulation of wealth and the formation of our states. And so to think beyond it does require us to kind of really... Um, dismantle our ways of thinking and that can only happen in a sort of forward-looking way in which we are building something in which abolition is the central goal that then unites and reconfigures all of our political, social, economic, and lived relations on the smallest scale possible to the largest scale possible. So I feel like I'm only echoing back <laughs> to you what I've learned and gleaned from what you've been saying, which, you know, honestly has destabilizing in the best way possible and forcing all of us to kind of rethink our base assumptions. I guess the last question I wanted to ask you is about abolition as presence. What I've really taken away from your work and how you think with W.B. Du Bois is thinking about abolition not right as an absence, but as a presence, about abolition being joyful, that it's a process of world building, it is messy, it's iterative, it's creative. I guess, can you tell us, can you tell our listeners what gives you hope? Where are the places that you have been and where you have felt or continue to feel this presence of abolition, that quote, fleshly and material presence of social life live differently, end quote. Because clearly it's not something, as you, you know, very beautifully articulated, it's not something that necessarily has to be positioned in a distant utopian future necessarily, but in fact is is present all around us in small and larger ways. I'll just give, without going into details, some examples. There aren't necessarily places I've been. For example, I've been to South Africa, but I have not been a guest of the land occupations in Durban or Cape Town. But I've been reading a lot and talking with people, especially about the community called Canaan or Kanana in Durban that just celebrated, I think, its 15th year. And to um, realize abolitionist presence is the complexity of livingness, as Catherine McKittrick might put it. People in and of that community have made over time 
There's a school, the Franz Fanon School. There is um, a small farm, it's called the Garden. Some of the seeds used there came from the MST in Brazil, as well as actual rice that the MST has produced in Brazil has made it all the way around there. So when we think about global logistics, rather than think, oh, we got to turn all of that off, is to, again, to think about, well, you know, what should move rather than people shouldn't move and things shouldn't move. In history, the PAIGC, the African Party for the Independence of Guinea-Bissau and Cabo Verde education program is an example. And there's a great book about it by Sonia Bash Borges, who was a postdoc at CPCP until a few years ago. The various kinds of solidarity that we see have come out of Cuba over decades and decades and decades and decades. Look, when I was in the third grade at the L.W. Wheeler Beecher School, we came back to school in the spring about this time of year after spring break. And we had a very nice third grade teacher, Mrs. Shenfield. And we said, Mrs. Shenfield, what did you do on your, I think we called it Easter vacation. And she said, Mr. Shenfield and I took a cruise as we do every year. And our cruise ship went to Havana in Cuba. We were not allowed, however, to get off the boat because they were having a fight in Cuba between the followers of Mr. Batista, who many people in Cuba thought was not a good leader, and the followers of Mr. Castro, who many people in Cuba thought was a very good leader. That's how I learned about the Cuban Revolution in third grade. You got to understand, I'm a kid of the Cold War. And yet those kinds of things came up just as in my 12 years old geography class, we learned about different modes of production. The reduction in the range and depth of just knowing about the world that people in the United States have suffered over the last 60 years is phenomenal, is phenomenal. I just went to an ordinary neighborhood working class school Nothing fancy. So that's another example. And a kind of legacy, which is to say a constant enlivening of that work in Cabo Verde and Guinea-Bissau is here in Portugal, in Lisbon, where there's an amazing organization of young people, meaning people from teens through their late 30s, who have organized communities here in the periphery to save housing, education programs. A lot of the people who do that work have a wide variety of day jobs, a wide variety of day jobs, but are also resolutely anti-capitalist. Some are members of communist tendencies, others are members of other left parties. Some are musicians at night. So that community, which I'm very much a part of, and if you saw the Antipode film, Racial Capitalism with Ruth Wilson Gilmore, what a weird title. The young man I'm talking to is a part of that group, Flavio Almada, my, my friend and comrade. So that gives me hope. All of the things that so many different kinds of people are doing around the States, around Canada, in Mexico, the Red Nation, which I mentioned, is doing remarkable stuff. I have friends who are 
doing incredible work in Palestine where, you know, I was there 31 years ago. I can't even imagine. I mean, I've seen pictures, but I can't imagine the feeling of it because 31 years ago, the feeling of it was quite extraordinarily optimistic, I'd say. It seems to me that the ability for us to do what we do today is based in so many different kinds of conflict that people have understandably, but unfortunately kind of ascribed to certain kinds of categorical incommensurabilities, the sorts of conflicts we just have to work through to be able to do the things that we're doing. So the most ridiculous forms of what are called by supporters and opponents as of identity politics exemplify this, that there's a kind of devolution to some least common denominator that then becomes exclusive. And the argument that people have is that if you're not a member of this exclusive group, then you cannot say anything about it. And that conflict, again, I understand the reasons for that. It comes from you know, round after round after round of devolution. So it starts to pattern the way we imagine that we organize the political sphere is by devolving it. This devolutionary, what seems to be almost an imperative is enlivening again for me in ways that actually frighten me, the kind of, a certain kind of um, geopolitical norm that characterized the post-World War I period. When, you know, for the first time in the history of the world, the nation state arose as the normal, fundamental, to be longed for political economic form of being in the world for economic life, ethnic life, linguistic life, social life. All of this stuff worries me. And I think that the capacity for abolition to articulate, which is to say, speak some of these conflicts and to connect, articulate in the sense of connect, many of these struggles kind of enlivens the possibility to expand the sorts of co cooperation that I just laid out to you quickly by running through a few examples. One of the things we've been talking about for all of our time together is the various ways the endless ways that capitalism saves capitalism from capitalism. So the example you brought up of the, you know, Marx writing about the criminal and then criminal law, no, it's a perfect example. It's a really perfect example, but there are so many perfect examples. Does this mean that the world is a vast and pulsating epiphenomenon and that there's this base of capitalism that is the real thing? Of course not. Of course not. So there are, you know, all kinds of other relations that we didn't even touch on. And I'm going to end with, you know, thinking about Amilcar Cabral, my, one of my favorite theorists of all time. He lived back and forth as a young boy between Cabo Verde and Guinea-Bissau. And uh, his dad was a school teacher, actually. And his father started thinking about the problems that Cabo Verde experienced through its endless droughts, although his father's school teaching, I don't think was scientific. And as you know, Cabral was trained as an agronomist by the Portuguese state to be a member of the professional managerial class for the Portuguese state, 
in the overseas province, which is to say the colony. And the very first public presentation he ever gave was a radio interview that eventually was published in the Cabo Verde newspaper that was about rain. So his kind of revolutionary consciousness started you know, from the ground, from water and class struggle, from water and colonial struggle, from water and struggle against racial capitalism. And he said, sometime, oh, probably in the very late 60s, early 70s, maybe when he was at Cuba at one of the big global gatherings of the revolutionizing and revolutionary third world, he said, you know, it wasn't that long ago that many of our comrades thought that being a revolutionary meant talking on the radio. And I just want to emphasize that I am pleased and honored to have been included in this radio broadcast, but I know that what I've done here with great pleasure has been to talk. Thank you. Thank you so much, Dr. Gilmore. I think I can say that both China and I have not only learned so much, but also have laughed a lot today, <laughs> which I think, you know, ties back to this idea about abolition actually being joyful. It is, it does not have to be a narration of catastrophe. It actually can be a narration of all the ways in which thinking with all these brilliant people and learning from all of the places in the world that we live and work in is actually a tremendously pleasureful activity. And thank you so much. I'm just so moved by this conversation, Ruthie. I can't thank you enough. And I'm so happy that uh, Cabral made it at the end. This was just an extraordinary, extraordinary journey of a conversation. So thank you so much for generously sharing these wonderful ideas with us and ways of being really. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you both. This was so much fun. I really enjoyed myself. Dr. Ruth Wilson-Gilmore is the author of Golden Gulag, Prison, Surplus, Crisis, and Opposition in Globalizing California. She joined us today from her home in Lisbon, Portugal. For more information on her work, please go to pcp.gc.cuny.edu. We also welcome your ideas. If you have ideas about programming or you want to contribute to the Jadalia Environment page, please email us at environment at Thank you for listening and until next time.